Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Under Pressure, with a message titled, The True Christian Identity. So turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan was well, one of the greatest of Christian books. The late J.I. Packer used to read it once every year of his life. It's an allegory. It's the story of a man named Christian on his way to the celestial city. And along the way, he encounters all manner of things that would keep him from his final destination. So Christian is traveling with a man named Faithful, and both of them have fled from the city of destruction. And in their travels, they come to Vanity Fair, a place of ostentation filled with empty amusements. And all year round, merchandise is bought and sold there, houses and lands, but also honors and preferments, silver and gold, as well as human souls. At all times, one can see jugglers and cheats and games and plays, as well as every form of morality, including lusts and pleasures. So Christian and faithful enter the city, but their dress is different. They speak a different language. See, they speak the language of Canaan, and it isn't understood in Vanity Fair. People assume they're fools. But what irks the townspeople about these two men is their attitude towards the goods that are displayed at the fair. When the two men look at the goods displayed, they they look away. They put their fingers in their ears and they cry out the words of Psalm 119, verse 37, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. You know, in short order, they're arrested and they're the objects of the malice of the people of the town. How can the city of Vanity Fair put up with people who reject their values? Well, it's a long story as to, you know, how they get out of jail and out of Vanity Fair, but I think Peter would have agreed with that book. After all, he's already called Christians elect exiles, chosen by God and yet exiles from this world. That means they don't belong to the culture to which they once belonged. You know, today's passage in 1 Peter now comes back to the idea that Peter began with. It's about why elect exiles will never fit into the general culture. So I'm reading today one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." You know, it's hard not to see that the passage I've just read fits into two paragraphs. See, the first paragraph tells us who we are. The second tells us what we're not, or at least warns us against what we must not become. Don't join the city of Vanity Fair. So let's start with who we are. Our passage begins with the word, but. In contrast to those who stumble over the person of Christ, finding him objectionable, utterly rejecting him, consider who you are in contrast. And then in describing his elect exiles, the the unique status of the Christian, Peter now gives us four descriptors of Christian identity. 
Each descriptor comes from the First Testament and was used to describe Israel. But Peter uses this language to now describe the church. Let's consider our identity. First, we're a chosen race. You know, that wording comes from Exodus 19, verse 5, where Israel is told, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. But here the church is called the chosen race. The word chosen is the Greek word electos, the elect people. Out of all the people of the earth, God has chosen or elected you to be his race of humanity. Now, of course, the church is not made up of one race of people. We're made up of every race of mankind. So while it's easy to understand that God would elect Israel, for they are a race of people. So in what sense is the church an elect race of people? And the answer to that question is found in the writings of Paul, which Peter would have been quite familiar with. Ephesians 2.15, Paul says that God has created one man in place of the two. And Paul means that the distinction between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Christ, and in place of Jew and Gentile has come a new race of humanity, those that are found in Christ. And Peter now takes up that theme. God has elected his church a new race of humanity that belongs uniquely to Christ. Now stop for a moment and think of just how radical that is. All nations of the world feel a sense of loyalty and even patriotism to one another. But now God has done something new. He's created an unheard of race of humanity, a new race whose loyalty to each other and to Christ their Lord supersedes all other loyalties on earth. And that's to say all true Christians are more committed to Christ and to each other than they are to the nations in which they live. That's an elect new nation of humanity. Now, that's who you are in Christ, says Peter, but he's not done. Second, you're a royal priesthood. And again, Peter borrows from the First Testament from Exodus 19. Verse 6 says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, in ancient Israel, Aaron and his sons would play an, an exclusive role as the priests. And Exodus 19 doesn't negate that. You know, in the future, the special role of the priest was that he would enter into God's presence on behalf of the people. He would offer up sacrifices for their sins. He'd also plead with God on behalf of the people. And they would seek to bring the people before God, pleading for mercy and grace. Now then, Exodus 19, verse 6 says, the entire nation would be a nation of priests, and it meant that the entire nation had a priestly function to play. They, by their righteous living, would represent the ways of God among the nations. And furthermore, Israel was to be a conduit, inviting the nations to be reconciled to God. But of course, as we know from their history, they failed badly. Instead of leading the nations to God, they became like the nations, worshiping the idols of the nations, taking upon themselves the customs of the nations. And because of that, they incurred the wrath of God. Now, Peter borrows from that phrase. The elect nation, he says, is now a nation of priests. Let me suggest an illustration of exactly that. You know, years ago, we had a summer barbecue in our backyard, and you know, we invited some of our neighbors to join us, and they did, and they came. And I asked if I could pray before we ate, and everyone agreed, even though some did it with some nervousness. And, and I used the opportunity to pray for all of my neighbors, asking God to bless them. I remember one neighbor approaching me with tears afterwards, and she said, that's the first time 
I've ever heard someone praying for me. And that's the idea of a royal priesthood. The lost people of this world have no priest. God has appointed believers to be their priests. Notice that Peter didn't just call believers a priesthood, but also a royal priesthood. He meant that we're priests and that we're children of the great king, Jesus, who is our Messiah. Very good. A chosen race, a royal priesthood. Third, Peter says, a holy nation. Now, of course, in one sense, this repeats what Peter has already told Christians. You're an elect race of people. But the idea of a holy nation adds a new thought to that. So let's start, as we did before, with a First Testament background. Again, it's Exodus 19, verse 6, which calls Israel a holy nation. It meant that they were separate from the people around them. You know, the book of Leviticus, although not calling Israel a holy nation, contains numerous commands just like that. You shall be holy, for I am holy. But as we work our way through the First Testament, we see again that it wasn't so. But Peter now applies that term to the church. The new nation is distinct from all the nations of the earth. That, of course, doesn't mean what it meant in Leviticus. There, the holiness of Israel had a lot to do with, you know, what they ate and the clothing they wear and the uniquenesses of the sacrifices that they would celebrate in the tabernacle. But in the church, our holiness, well, it has a lot to do not with language, clothing, and food. It has to do with the morality that we profess, our willingness to remain unstained from sin. You know, at that point, it's necessary to stop and confess that in many contemporary churches, it hasn't been so. You know, I have satellite radio in my car, and just the other day, I heard an advertisement for lawyers who specialize in cases of clergy abuse. They claimed they would take no payment. They would only be paid after the claim was successful. I felt like stopping my car and weeping. Clergy abuse, especially clergy sexual abuse, it's now rampant so that it's spawned a set of lawyers who specialize in that matter. Here's the truth of the matter. One large denomination has recently released a 300-page report in which they indicated that top leaders in their denomination repeatedly tried to bury sexual abuse claims and even stonewalled and vilified the victims of sexual abuse. Listen, when the church stops being a holy nation, it stops being the church. And Peter says, don't you know who you are? At Back to the Bible Canada, it's our hope that your walk with Christ would be strengthened and encouraged through the wide variety of resources made available through so many different mediums to ensure Bible teaching you can trust is freely accessible to those who desire to know the Bible and our Lord more deeply. One listener wrote, It is a joy to listen to Dr. Newfeld and the staff of Back to the Bible Canada as they faithfully teach the Bible daily. It's a real blessing to hear the word daily for encouragement and exhortation. If you feel blessed by this ministry, can we ask you to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $409,000 This year, a few friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $100,000 to make this campaign a success. To make your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. At this point, let's review the identity of the church. First, an elect or chosen race, Second, the royal priesthood. Third, a holy nation. 
now fourth, a people for his own possession. It's a marvelous image. In it, I'm reminded of Paul's words, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says, you're not your own. You're bought at a price. That is, we were in slavery to sin and to the principles of this world, but Christ purchased us at the cost of his blood. And when we were purchased, we were not released to go our own way. Rather, once having been slaves to this world, we now become slaves to Christ. A people for his possession means Christ owns our lives. You know, it's an image that's borrowed from the world of slavery. All of Peter's readers would have understood that. Even though some slaves in the ancient world were treated quite well, many were not, and they could not do as they pleased. They did as their master pleased. Everyone who understands the gospel must say the same for themselves. My life is not my own. I'm not free to pursue my own desires. I'm the possession of Christ. He owns me. Seems to me that it would be quite in order then for any Christian, whenever they find themselves in a situation where either a decision is required of them or a temptation stands before them or a pathway must be chosen, in every and in each case, we are to remind ourselves that the decision before us is not ours to make. It's Christ's decision. He's our master. Now, we have four descriptions of the church of Jesus. That's the authentic church of Jesus. And then Peter adds a purpose clause. That is, God has a purpose in mind for creating just such a group of people, that they might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's about evangelism, says Peter. Declare his praises. Make known his mighty deeds. Let the world hear about it. Don't be shy about declaring the excellencies of your God. I've long thought that one of the keys to effective evangelism is that we talk about what God has done for us and in us. Has God answered a significant prayer that you had? When your work colleagues ask, hey, whatever happened to that problem that you had, don't answer by saying, well, you know, it was amazing. Things seem to work out well. Why would you leave out the reasons why things worked out well? Are you ashamed of your God who answered your prayers? Tell people, God answered my prayers. Here's what I prayed. Here's what God did. But of course, Peter is in our passage talking more about declaring the praises of the one who has done something in us. He's called us out of darkness into his light. And then notice Peter uses two phrases. Each one begins with the word once and then transitions with the word but now. Once this was but now this has become. You know, I need to pause here because every single Christian must have a once and then a but now story to tell. Of course, this was easy for those Christians that Peter was addressing. Those who were Gentiles had come to Christ from a pagan background, and those who were Jews would have trusted in their own righteousness in the past, only now to be saved by the work of Christ. The transformation of both Jews and Greeks was real and profound. Here's where the problem begins. It begins with the second generation. You know, the second generation sometimes has difficulty talking the language of once I was, but now I am. Indeed, a great many second, third, fourth generation Christians will say, well, you know, I learned to pray when I was little. I was taken to church. I heard the Bible being read. I was trained to confess my sins and look to Christ for mercy. I don't know this language of once I was and now I am. But when we think that way, you know how wrong we are? We need to remember the words of Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's to say, look, I'm a child of Adam. 
I've inherited Adamic sin as well as Adamic condemnation. So even as a child, I learned very quickly that I preferred darkness and rebellion and hatred of the law of God and hatred of the ways of God. But God had mercy on me when I was a child. You see, that needs to be said. And if you who come from a Christian home don't think that way, well, you haven't understood your life. So let's look at these two once but now statements. Here's the first. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. And you need to say, look, Although I was born in a Christian home, even so, I didn't belong to God's people. I belonged to Adam, not to the second Adam, who's Christ. And were it not for the grace of God, I would have strayed from the people of God and found my natural place among the pagan cultures of this world. But God had mercy on me. Now the second statement. Once I had not received mercy, I was born into sin. From my first cry, I voiced, my will, not thine be done. I threw the peas onto the floor in rebellion as a child. I readily joined hand with those who felt as I did. And in this dark heart, I found I was a child of wrath, but now in Christ, I have received mercy. See, unless we identify with Christ's rescue plan, we're not his people. Unless we confess, I once was lost, but now am found, we're not found at all. Unless we've bowed the knee and confessed ourselves unworthy of grace, but have pled for it in Jesus, well, we've found no grace at all. Once I was, but now I am. And so to the elect exiles of this world, Peter has wanted them to have a blazingly clear understanding of their identity. Now, they're not the hounded and hated cast-offs of this world. Not that. They're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, and a people of Christ's own possession. And now we come to the second paragraph starts in verse 11 with the words, Beloved, I urge you. In fact, this needs to be added to the new identity of believers. If it's true that once you were and now you're something else, on that basis, you must be urged to do something. You can't just revel in your identity. There's something for you to do. So what is it? Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You know, it's fascinating that Peter's concern is the passion of the flesh. Like our world today, you know, the ancient first century world in which the Christian faith was born, well, it was an extremely sensual world. So let's take this one phrase at a time, not necessarily the way we find it in the text. See, the first phrase I want to concentrate on is the last phrase, which war against your soul. Now, in a war, one side wants to defeat and enslave the other. And Peter knows there's a war on, and it is a fight. Each believer must win, lest it be lost. That's how serious this battle is. Now, what's the nature of the battle? It's the passions of the flesh. The flesh in biblical theology is that part of you that's habitual. It's the the pattern of behavior to which you naturally go without thinking. Now, the phrase passions of the flesh means that the flesh responds to strong desire. And that can be sexual, but it can also be anything else that delights your flesh. Greed, lust, anger, that sort of thing. Now then, how is that warfare waged? What weapons do we bring to the fight? Did you notice that one word? It's the verb to abstain. You've got to say no to the flesh in such a way that the flesh understands that your will is greater than the flesh's desires. So that's what Peter is urging us. If you have an identity as a believer, you've got to fight the flesh. Secondly, 
you must learn proper Christian decorum. And that's why Peter mentions our conduct among the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, he means pagan Gentiles. So it's very important that when Christian people are about in the world, that they're aware that there is a Christian way to act. Now, we might wonder at this point exactly what Peter has in mind, but we don't have to guess because it's in the next section of the book, and Peter will describe exactly what he has in mind. You know, from now until chapter 3, verse 11, Peter's going to talk about Christian decorum when it comes to, to government, relations of Christians in the workplace, marriage relationships. Finally, he's going to talk about Christian decorum when it comes to Christian dealings around people who are their enemies who seek to do them harm. And so whether it's a matter of the fight with the flesh or whether it's a matter of trying to figure out how to live in a pagan environment, Christians are urged, you're a chosen race and you're going to have to act like it. Now, of course, Peter has an outcome in mind. You want to be so honorable, he says, that even when evildoers are slandering you, they still might be aware of your good deeds. And then he adds something, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Two ways of understanding that. Peter might mean that they're going to be visited by God in their own conversion and glorify God because of the testimony that you had that had an effect on them. Or Peter might be saying, in the final day of judgment, When they must give an account, they will grudgingly have to admit that the conduct of believers was righteous while theirs was not. But however Peter meant it, one thing remains. Peter means to portray a Christian identity that is vastly different than the culture around it. That, he says, is authentic Christianity. Thanks so much, John. You know, I've been struggling, and I know you have too. Uh, uh, We have deep feelings about so many reports of fallen Christian leaders and pastors, misconduct, abuses. Where does it leave us as God's people? Yeah, and it uh, leaves us ashamed uh, of because our testimony is being besmirched in the world. I mean, every time another pastor falls into sin, it's more than just that. I'd say this to, to any Christian leader. I mean, if you can't Uh, keep your sexual house in order, get out of the ministry, get out of leadership. You'll become a scandal uh, to the people of God. Uh, You'll cast aspersions against the gospel of Jesus. That's what's been happening. So I think what we need to do as a church, we need to repent. We need to insist that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Uh, These are the things that we ought to be known for. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. In Deuteronomy eleven nineteen, we find instruction on our commitment to the teaching of the Bible. We are to teach His Word to our children, wherever we are, at any time of day. And that's the significance of our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program. So if you choose to join this monthly program, you're partnering with us to ensure that Bible teaching is being taught faithfully and abundantly. One monthly partner said, if your heart is to see Christians grow in maturity in their walk with the Lord, and to see lives transformed and turned towards Jesus, I would encourage you to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada through their 1119 Fellowship Program. To join or for more information, 
or to offer a single gift towards our dollar-for-dollar fiscal year-end match campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.